It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hey, Chris, have you ever made sausage? <laughs> No, I haven't. Surprisingly easy. I've made jerky. You have? Yeah. With the dehydrator? Uh, Yes. Yes. And also with the oven. What kind of jerky? Uh, Venison jerky. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So Some gamey jerky. Yeah. Not bad, though. You just got to season it. Yeah. But yeah, have you made sausage? I've made chorizo. Oh, right. Yeah. Had some leftover pork shoulder, and it's just about getting the weight to salt ratio right. correct and you just kind of let it sit in the fridge mix it all together some spices and that's it so but you didn't like put it in the little no i didn't put it in casing i just casing. I, I, I left it loose but i have a meat grinder uh attachment to my like stand mixer so mm-hmm. i cut you know ground up the meat mixed it with salt and spices and 48 hours later i was eating chorizo what did you uh where would you get the casings if you needed to can you buy those at like a normal store? The, yes. You go to um, the condom aisle and get Magnum XL. <laughs> no, I don't what if know. you want breakfast sausage? <laughs> <laughs> you get the petite ones. Are there yeah, petite exactly. ones? It's been so long since I've shopped for condoms. No. So I don't even remember. Oh. I just knew I just would always get the XL just so I could look the, <laughs> you know, the lady in the, st- in the eyes as I walked. As I checked out. <laughs> That's right. Just a little add-on. Just push it in there and just make total eye contact with her. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> push what in there? Exactly. Anyway, uh, why do you ask, by the way? Well, we have this idea. We've gotten some feedback from readers about like how the sausage gets made, mm-hmm. metaphorically, not, right. not literally, because we're not a cooking podcast, um, about big wall climbing and what, like, how how this shit gets done. Right. A lot of that knowledge is uh, esoteric or just withheld by the people doing the climbing. And so I think there's like some misconceptions about why that is. And so I thought we could talk about that today. We actually mentioned it. This was obviously um, a little bit prompted by Emily's interview last time and uh, or two times ago, whenever this comes out. But um yeah, I mean, and, and we've often joked on here just how complicated it sort of is. And the other thing that I've I've often played with in my head and also publicly is this this idea of mythology that we we sort of uh, all agree to believe in when it comes to climbing, and that it's pretty easy to poke holes in it. But we have this idea, I think, that basically starts with like you know on any climb like two people leaving the ground and climbing till they get to the top and you know doing their best and partially on sighting and i mean it, it it kind of begins there and then we sort of add layers of rules onto that and 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 what actually gets done but very seldom does that actually happen well so um uh, most people when they go climbing especially in the first few years that they they get into the sport they're often going to be climbing trad they're probably going to be climbing moderate routes, and it's going to be a situation where it's them and their partners. Um, they leave the ground. One person leads, gets to an anchor, builds an anchor, brings up the next person. They're both free climbing. 
they do that three or four times in a row and they get to the top of their, you know, their multi-pitch route. That's like not how it works on, on a cutting edge route, like, you know, or just like any cutting edge free climb on like a big wall or on El Cap or something like that. Yeah. And also when you're, when you're doing that, you know, if you, you are usually on siding or, or the, again, this kind of basic form of it is on siding in the beginning. Yeah. And usually on a route like that, if you fall you or you hang or you take, like that's, you don't lower, pull the gear, do it again, all that sort of stuff. It's just part of the day. Like, okay, you couldn't do that pitch. You'll come back some other time and right. do that pitch. So, yeah. And that's like the basic form of climbing that I think everybody has in their head is this idea of, yeah, you leave the ground, you get to the top and did your best kind you of a thing. I started climbing at the gunk, so I'm I'm kind of my memory's going back there mm-hmm. now, and I'm curious if there's any uh, listeners who are projecting like high exposure or something like that, or you know, like the the five six climb right. that everyone does in, within their first year of climbing. Like, is that a, a thing that people are projecting? I don't know, but I doubt it. I doubt it too. <laughs> I think if you if you fail on that pitch, it's because you freaked out, right? And then you just either stop climbing or you come back and and, and another time and did it, and then you're good, right? You're moving on, yeah. Right. You're not up there like I'm so pumped. But even if you fall, which I'm sure people have fallen mm-hmm. on it, you you still just like pull on and then go to the top and yeah. then call it good. I've uh, yeah, heights. you don't project yeah, it. Yeah, like you're not you're, projecting it. Yeah, you just pull the rope and pull the gear. Yeah, yeah, totally. So. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's an interesting thing because that image, you know, even within climbing, it it's it's kind of like an old image of how we climb. But it's almost even back into the the golden age. It's not even how hard routes got done even then. Like it, it, we have this idea that these guys were, and it was mostly guys. Um, not to sound sexist, but it just was. That they, you know, they were climbing in this style because we hear about all the ethics that went with climbing. But you, you, you get into the stories of those days, even back in the fifties and sixties, and you know, things were getting top roped and getting rehearsed and getting done even then. Mm-hmm. It, it, but the mythology that's come out of that era is this pure era of like ground up ethics and you know everybody arguing about who did what in the best style. But I think the ethics discussion is a distraction in a lot of right. ways from just the uh just an honest explanation of of um what how climbing gets done at a high level in mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. uh because all style is like uh, a matter of spectrum mm-hmm. you know it's like a there's good style better style even better style than that and so that's all fun stuff to talk about in theory and uh, debate which is better and which isn't better but how people employ that style like actually in the day-to-day you know nine to five work that they're doing on their projects or Mm -hmm. in their climbing that part of the discussion is so relevant and it so rarely gets discussed um because it's so tedious to talk about yeah, I think that's like a big part of it is yeah. like just being able to say, yeah, I fiddled around with this one move and like I had to remember that there's like a number nine nut that goes here and I had to use tick marks and to do this and that and I had to stash water on the ledge and I had to, it, it becomes monotonous to explain all of the things that go into 
how achievements get made. Um, and so that is a big part of it. And you don't learn, there's no book that you can buy right now that I know of that talks about simul climbing using like mini tractions and uh, short fixing and stuff like that. And so all of that stuff is just this learned knowledge that comes from just actually going climbing with people who are better than you and, and just being like, okay, this is how the, the better people are doing the routes and this is what I should be doing too. You know, I think it is sort of tedium, but when people, uh, you know, sometimes either call bullshit or they, they feel like maybe, you know, the, the true nature of the ascent was maybe left unsaid or, or there were details that maybe should have been said about what got led and what didn't get led and fixed gear and all those sorts of things. Like the truth is, is that it just, it, it, that's also part of the tedium of, of not only the logistics of how to climb a wall, but also like, does it really matter? Because I mean, you know, the Dawn wall is right now being held up as this like, you know, great groundbreaking, you know, ascent. And every once in a while you hear a peep when you watch, you know, when the videos are out where someone's like, well, wait a second, is all the gear pre-placed? You know, and it's like, well, yeah, a lot of it was actually, you know, and I think that, you know, we come from an era of the pink point, Mm -hmm. right? And that was considered maybe not valid if you let a trad climb with gear in place. Mm -hmm. And, And so it's like, I don't know if it invalidates their ascent or whatever, but it's like, well, that's not even, it, it just breaks the image. Again, the image of the person right. with the rack on the ledge and they start right. climbing and they're placing gear. And that's why you, that's how you trad climb. Right. Well, it's funny. I I'm thinking about this just now. This is a theory I'm going to put out into the world on the fly right now. Um, but the more, the bigger the route gets, the less strict the, the rules are. Right. For what is considered valid. So if you start with bouldering, that's where you find like the the biggest sticklers in climbing mm-hmm. because you know, it's a matter of whether your left hand is on the right hold or the right hand is on the left hold. That could invalidate or not your boulder ascent. Right. Or you know, whether you started on just with your feet on the ground or with two pads underneath you or whatever. <laughs> they they get pretty particular with their ascents. You get to sport climbing and that's kind of maybe like the most consolidated rules, I would say. You know, you either you you start at the bottom because the route's all set for you. There's right. like a beginning and an end and you climb to the top, clipping all the bolts or skipping them, whatever. doesn't matter. As long as you clip the chains, then you're good. And then you get to big wall climbing and uh, big wall free climbing and it starts to get a little murky in terms of what people are calling free ascents of walls and it's everything from you know you fall you you know you yo-yo the pitch or you leave the gear in place and try the pitch again or you're climbing with a partner and they do half the leading and so but they didn't free all of the route and so you you get the benefit of their top ropes on some of the pitches but you don't get all of the the uh the accolades of having led every pitch and so well and there's stuff like lowering to a stance that still gets done right which i think is bullshit yeah that's a pretty tough one yeah i think yeah well so so here's here's i don't want to interrupt you but let's put a marker on that idea of like you think that that's bullshit well let let me give a specific example of something that i i 
I haven't spoken about, but I've always wondered about, which is the Dawn Wall, the first ascent of the Dawn Wall. After the Dino Pitch, uh, or you can do Tommy's variation of the Dino Pitch, the which is the down climb and then up. Both of those, either the Dino Pitch or the down climb and up, get to a ledge or a no-hand stance, as I understand it, without an anchor in it. They call that the end of that pitch. And then from that stance, you go into another 14A pitch or like a V10 boulder or whatever. Had those guys just put an anchor, like a bolted anchor in at that stance, I wouldn't have questioned this at all. But because there is no bolted anchor there and they just call it a st- um, the end of the pitch, it seems suspicious to me. <laughs> because What do you think they're up to? Well, what Kevin w- did try to do on the ascent was do the dyno pitch and then continue climbing into the V10 14A pitch. He, he did the dyno and then fell on the V10, lowered to the stance and then did the, and then did it after, you know, resting or whatever. Um, and I'm not sure how much time elapsed between doing the dyno pitch and, right. but they, they're whatever they were just happened to call this random point on the wall where they can take their hands off the wall, the end of a pitch. Now it's so arbitrary and funny that had they just drilled bolts into the wall there, you would be okay with it. I would be totally okay with it. I wouldn't have thought <laughs> twice. I wouldn't have been posing this question, but the simple fact that they thought that maybe these things can be linked together. Right. Um, and good for them for not putting a bolt in because they think they probably can. And someone, Adam Andre tried to do this and he didn't do it either. He, he also used this no hands random stance and was fine with that. At some point, someone in the future will, will link those things together. They'll do the dyno pitch into this 514 V10 thing. And that'll just be the, the one pitch that they do. Mm-hmm. And it will have been unmarred by bolts that they've placed, but it's an interesting thing. Like I, uh, I'm, um, I wouldn't go as far as to say the Donwall hasn't been free climbed, but you, you kind of, you can reach that conclusion in a in a weird way because simply by the fact that they just haven't established that as an anchor at the end of a pitch, right? It's just a stance that they arbitrarily decided could be the starting point or an ending point for the pitches above and below it. (laughs) Oh, man, you've been thinking deep and hard about this. (laughs) But it's really what I'm talking about. And what we're talking about is that that there's like, you know, that's super convoluted. And, you know, you're, you're pulling in traditions that both work sometimes and don't work sometimes. Because, you know, another famous thing to do is, is to, you know, put an anchor where it's hard and then you can stop right because you can you know the 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 a wall was originally divided into two pitches and as an eight climber they just had stopped in the middle of it ran out of rope or ran out of gear or whatever and so there was this hanging belay that allowed you to stop in the middle of what is really just the still the climbing mm-hmm. and so it can go either way like okay so they put bolts in there so now they get to use it as an anchor i mean it's been skipped now the lack of bolts is not, I mean, it's like yeah. a little bit of a, a, a tweaked it's, kind it, of thing to start thinking it's about. It's super complicated. And I, in all the writing I've done about the Dawn Wall, I've never even discussed this idea because 
who the fuck cares? <laughs> exactly. Like, who the fuck cares? Who the you fuck know? cares is it's right. So, um, it's so inside baseball-y, you so, know? Like, but that's that's why we're that's why our, our podcast exists basically yeah because to do this is to discuss these things yeah yeah and it, i mean it's also like a, a very sort of academic kind of discussion because you know you're not like you know furiously trolling tommy caldwell about how he didn't totally. do the dawn wall no you know it's just this not. weird academic discussion about the rules of our game you know and i Having worked with Tommy um, as an editor of his writing about mm -hmm. the Don Wall and other things he's written, um, I've pushed him to try to take firm stances on what the rules are because he's the guy that gets to decide in a way. He is the guy who gets to decide, and he should be. I mean, who else is going to decide? Like me, some, some, <laughs> sitting on your couch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, someone needs to no, decide. I should, I should be the guy that decides. I, honestly, someone does need to decide right. though, because it's so crazy. Right. Like the big wall climbing thing is so crazy because right. people are just coming up with all kinds of random rules about what counts and what doesn't count, and um, and and choosing when asterisks need to be, you know mentioned in their reports or when they don't need to be right you don't get that in bouldering and you certainly don't get that in spore climbing where it's like pretty straightforward about what is valid and what isn't um and so that the big wall thing is like an interesting uh it's just an interesting discussion yeah. that we still haven't quite figured out how to codify what the rules are there's every once in a while in sport climbing there's a little kerfuffle about like pre-clipping bolts and right from the ground and stuff like that right you know knee pads yeah but, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so but i mean it's the point being is that we want to we we actually as a climbing community we desire clarification on these things mm -hmm. i think a lot of us do anyway maybe yeah. a lot of people don't give a shit but that's not true because i mean everybody who who free climbs you know they have at least their base rules that belong to them, whether it's like, you don't give a shit that you grabbed every hold in the gym. Mm -hmm. You know, most people are like, yeah, you grabbed the blue one and we're, we're climbing red right now, you know, but oh, I don't care. But, and it starts there and goes up from there because most people give a shit that you're trying to climb the blue route. You only grab the blue hold. And right. that's like the very basic version of rules. And then it goes from there. Like what you're allowed to do right. when you climb is personal, but we do have a basis for it. Right. You know? But yeah, and, and you know, this also came to my mind. We got an email about about it as well. But um, I recently did an interview with uh, Stephen Dimmitt at the at the Nugget, and it's out right now. He's going to be on our show um, as well. We've got we've got a talk with him that we're going to put out probably uh, before this, so it might already be out. But you know, he was the first guy in a long time that actually asked me about the free rider, which has been a running joke on the on the. Uh, the 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 cast freed the free rider. Um, I think I did it in two thousand and six. He asked me on the podcast. And I can't remember, but I've I've looked at the pictures now. I kind of like started to explain it to him, and and really by not my current standards, like I didn't free the free rider. Um, I I let I actually did exactly what you just mentioned. I I we did it as a partner ascent, so I top roped half of it, and my partner didn't send all the pitches. And so we, it's like this weird thing where I top roped half of it, but we didn't do a true partner ascent either because he didn't send it. Mm -hmm. But 
And at the time, I didn't. I I was like a little bummed about it. How does it, it feel to you admit that to everyone right now? Uh, fine. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I mean, it's like here. Here's the way it goes down. Like one of the one of the accusations within this conversation, and a little bit in in the email we got was that like people are hiding things on purpose. Right. And the fact is, is that like it, it, social media literally didn't exist. And so when we did it, we, we, we came down and we, the people we talked to, we talked to about how we did it. And since then, there's, there's really been, you know, it, it become, it's this passing joke in the Normacast, but the Normacast isn't a place for me to talk about the inside story of what I've climbed. So this was like the first time that like publicly I, I sat down and said, oh yeah, this is, this is what happened and this is how we did it. And, um, and to be honest with you, like right now it doesn't bother me because it's out there, but it did sort of like make me kind of think about like, well, what are all the details and how important are they? And at what point did I decide that this was what I had come to do, Mm -hmm. you know? And because it was past the era of the Hubers who really introduced the idea that one person leads the whole thing. Well, I would say that nobody really cares about that shit. Honestly, I think what people care about is like there's this whole discussion of elitism in climbing Mm -hmm. and knowledge is elitist in a way because in climbing because it's so hard to find. Right. And so like I guess my question would be, what would you suggest for people to do to gain the knowledge that they need to have? Forget about the climbing skill. Right. The climbing skill is straightforward. You go to the gym, you do your hangboarding, you like whatever, you get stronger, you do more pitches, you get better. But there's this certain esoteric or sense of like this esoteric knowledge of how do I go do free rider in a day? And the only way that you would ever know or like be able to put that on your mental map of how that that uh goal could be reached is through reading these reports of other people who have done that. Mm -hmm. And those reports inevitably do not disclose all of the process that goes into that, which is this sausage making thing that we're, we're getting at. And so like, what, what would be your advice for people to put themselves on that track to, to gain that knowledge? Like what, what the knowledge is and like, what, how do you like go about like getting, getting that for yourself well two things made me think of two things our our discussion around the the loss of rock and ice and the loss of print magazines and long-form journalism within climbing is a big one Mm. because the fact is is that you know there is an article by steph davis about doing the free rider maybe not her one day ascent but definitely her her climbing it that i used as a as like a ton of knowledge mm. for when I went up on the climb because it's detailed. There's actually pictures of her doing the crux, details about the, her struggles with it. So, you know, but that's the thing we're talking about is that's that's sort of gone. You know, the Instagram is never going to cover that, even right. if it's like a super long caption that is so annoying that you don't read the whole thing anyway. The other thing is sort of old school in that sense of the way we all learn to climb when we were young and when we started climbing, which was that you took a few of the things you could figure out from maybe from books and stuff. And then you just went out there and you fucking figured it out. And the truth is, is that 
to go into Yosemite and walk up day two, day three, and start up something like the Free Rider or the Golden Gate or anything else is an extraordinarily big feat. Go there for two months and find out what people are doing. The the people that you you know are commiserate to your skill level and what you want to do, and it's going to change everything. So it's like I don't know that there's a place to do that. I totally you know I agree mean? with that, and I think that there's there's no there's this whole conversation around mentorship and climbing, and my experience with that has been to put myself in the situations where that is going those experiences are going to be fostered. If you just go set up your tent in Yosemite for two months, you're going to meet people who will ha- have the same goals as you and maybe more knowledge, maybe less. Um, you have to be like discerning about who you climb with, of course, but yeah, that's the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. You're going to make errors and find people who are complete fucking psychos and don't know anything. And then you're going to find people who are willing to like explain how the sausage gets made. Yeah. And, and, and they don't even have to be willing to, in the sense of like, you know, they took you under their wing. It's like, you just find out what's going on and you start to put the pieces together that those guys are all going up on t- top of El Cap with the 300 foot static line. Right. Like, yeah, Oh, you just start talking okay. to them. Yeah. That's cool. Can I come? Do you need someone to help me carry that shit? And they're like, fuck yeah, we do. Yeah. You know? So it's like, it's an opportunity there, but it's it's interesting you say that, or we're talking about this because you know Rob and I going back to my, my climb on the freerider, we were ground up climbers, like that was our experience. Like we both dabbled in sport climbing at that point, you know, just because it was something you could do on a Saturday afternoon. But we weren't sport climbers in that sense of what sport climbing really means to go project and 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 get super into it. So you know, it's funny because we. We just didn't have this idea of like the thought of going to the top of El Cap and throwing a big ass rope down and going and checking out pitches never even would have like, we would never have even thought of that. We didn't know what was going on, but we also, you know, we would have raised an eyebrow, right? you know? So it's like, again, like just that knowledge was not widely known, even to someone who was super into the climbing scene, because it was a little bit new. And also at that point, you know, the ground up ethic and, and the idea yeah, of rehearsing changes. Yeah, was, it was okay, but it wasn't something you sort of like advertise yeah. the way you do now. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, it's a difficult, difficult operation to get it done. I, I, th- I would also, just on that note, I mean, you, at that point you were experienced enough to be a, an eyebrow raiser, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who are complete gumbies who are eyebrow raisers too. Right. And I think that that warrants a hard self reflection on where you are in your climbing because if you're if you're feeling very ethically aligned to some ideal that you've been told or have read in some inspiring article or whatever it is that needs to come from experience i think right. and um people often get really bad attitudes or just become terrible climbing partners because they adhere to these ethical boundaries that they think that they need to fall into uh, to be good climbers. Mm. You don't need to do that. You need to explore the sport for yourself and, and determine where those limits are, you know, obviously within, you know, quote unquote reason. Having been both people, yeah, you know, someone who's just like, 
you know, I, I, I actually say in that interview about how I had this rule about soloing that if you sold a wall, you sold it from your car to your car. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't carry stuff up, have someone help me carry stuff, mm-hmm. you know, up and down or whatever. Like I was like, and actually I also kind of. The um, least fun way to climb. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I also had a like, you know, if, if you, you know, I would see these, these pictures or video of people on solo ascents, like not free soloing, but, but wall solos, right? And I'd be like, well, were you by yourself? Because if the camera guy's there and he's got ropes fixed to the top, then you're, you've got a lifeline and you've got this guy who's there to talk to and that's not soloing, you know? And I actually kind of still feel that way a little bit, yeah. but because it, because it's part of like a wall, a multi-day solo on a wall is the mental game of being by yourself. Mm-hmm. And if someone shows up every day to take pictures of you, it's like a complete release valve. But nevertheless, like I'm not that guy anymore because it's like, I got into, you know, places where I had to like let the ethics, you know, or I had to let the experience decide what the ethics were. Yeah. And not only to, you know, in in some kind sometimes like protect myself, but also to have a good time and to keep relationships and to uh, you know, enjoy myself as a climber. Yeah. And that's what you're getting at is that you end up in this like dark world of like, you know, nitpicking around yeah. everybody else's ascents versus yours. Because yeah. you can make up your rules to a certain extent. And especially if you're not, you know, a pro climber who has this sort of like reputation to to maintain, who cares? Right. You know? Yeah. Hang like, dog all day. Yeah. Like when I climb. Go aid climbing, you know, do fall on shit that you can't yeah. get up. You yeah. Know? You, you, yeah. I think that's, it's hard to give yourself permission to like do that. Mm-hmm. You think that you need to like be at a certain level, but it's such a. Um, a restrictive mindset to have that uh, that purity test that you you put on yourself before you even put your shoes on, you know, and um, that's not good. And it holds people back, and it makes them resentful for people who seem seemingly have more freedom to, you know, go wrap down El Cap and like mm-hmm. put a bunch of tick marks and shit, and you know, like fuck up the whole wall, so to speak. They get. I can see where that ire comes from, but it's probably because of these self-restricting attitudes that are holding your own climbing back. Right. Yeah. And and, and, I mean, the the sport climbing is neither thing, which I think is faded, but was a part of our past, you know? And and I think it still exists places. I mean, I see it in the creek, like this idea that that's somehow this like pure form of climbing. Just as, you know, go have fun and, and, Sport climb when you want to sport climb and track climb when you want to track climb. And the thing is, is that you can, you can have different sets of rules for yourself for both. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I have no problem and it, it still pops up now and again that, you know, fixed, like having your draws hanging on a sport climb is some, somehow cheating. Right. Like I can hold both things together in my head, like hanging my draws on a sport climb, I'm fine with. Pre-placing my gear on a, on a track climb, I'm not fine with. Like. I don't have to do both. Like, right. you know what I mean? And that's, the, that's the thing is like people are applying one ethic from track climbing to sport climbing. Right. It's like, they're two different things. You guys yeah. chill. And, you know? and also if you walk up to a trad climb and there's pre-placed gear, you know, why not tie in and have fun and climb it? Right. You know, don't, don't be such a stickler that you're not going to 
and you're don't turn take your it. nose up. <laughs> and don't take it because it's somebody's like. And don't take it. Yeah, someone's trying to freaking you know they're they're it's their project and they've left gear. Yeah, like if the whole thing has like a bunch of fixed gear in it, don't take the gear. Well, I hope that this conversation <laughs> has uh, validated everyone's experiences. Yes, <laughs> including <laughs> that's mine. What, that's what we're here for. I still freed that fucking thing. <laughs> I don't care what you say. Nina Caprez is a Swiss climbing icon. She's climbed some of the hardest, most intimidating multi-pitch routes in Europe. She joins us today from her home in France. I have to say I feel pretty lucky. I was traveling in the U.S. for the last five years, I would say, always in October. And that's the first year I was home. And not just like home, I was working on a truck project that was close to hospital. And uh, yeah, I did some little health issues and it was the first time I was really super close to hospital. So I was like, oh, maybe that's good. That's good. I mean, it wasn't really something dramatic or so, but it's just a good reminder, like how quick it can just change things and uh, how, um, I wouldn't call it naive, but uh how just natural we take when you go and leave for adventure. I mean, I never leave for an adventure telling myself, ooh, and if something is happening and if I have a like a health issue, I always do things pretty much sure that it'll be all safe. Yeah, and you definitely don't want to end up in the US during a health crisis. Maybe <laughs> that'd not. Be, <laughs> Maybe that'd, be not. Like the, that'd be worse than most places in Maybe the world. Maybe not. So yeah, I feel um, pretty lucky. Pretty lucky, actually. Wasn't, wasn't part of the problem appendicitis? Did I read that? Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah. that's a thing. Yeah. Actually, I went to the hospital because I had lots of pain. And that was the first thing that came through my mind. The mm-hmm. doctors, they were not able to see some inflammation. And they're like, oh, there's like a kist. And uh, yeah, we just take that out. And during surgery, they actually saw that I had also like another, how do you say it in English? Appendicitis. Yeah. yeah, appendicitis. Appendicitis, yeah, appen- yeah. Appendectomy, you got your appendix taken out. But it's something that, yeah, if you were far away in the backcountry, I, I mean, I think it can eventually kill you, right? An appendicitis. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It can go yeah, yeah. super fast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so now you're safe. It's gone. You don't need to worry about that. Thank you. <laughs> no. no, but My- I mean, I just trust life. I mean, you know, I, I think there's always a reason why something happen or happening and, um, I think recently I'm really at the point in my life where I want to build or give a little bit uh, a new line to my future life. And if something like health is not like calming me down, I would always just be climbing, 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 climbing. You know, I'm just such a fanatic climber. But uh, yeah, now I just work on my future a little bit differently. And that also calmed me down a little bit. So it's good. Nina, you, I, I think you are the first person we've spoken to on this show uh, since the pandemic has uh, changed our world mm-hmm. and um, who's from Europe. And uh, so I would just like to know what the state of life is like in Europe, where you are and uh, how things have changed and what the lockdowns are like. Well, right now in France, I have to say my life in Europe I switch a bit between France and Switzerland. Switzerland because of my family lives there and I really like the place and I climb a lot in the Radicon. 
but beside that, I really moved to France and, um, yeah, it was hardcore, hardcore this spring. The lockdown was pretty serious. It was uh, hard to believe that something can really feel like it was. It is super hard for me to be not traveling. And I also realized that often when I need to go, I need to travel somewhere, I need to climb. It is, of course, because I really love climbing, but it is also because I'm not really willing to face real life sometimes. It's kind of cool to have this freedom to escape and to move and to just to follow the way of uh, like, um, how do you say, liberté. I can just go and leave whenever I want. And that was good in spring. We had uh, the lockdown with five other people in a tiny little house and it was pretty much gypsy and like it was actually really good we had so many good parties and like so many we played so many games and we had always dinner together and there was always something to you know we played music and we did some little training but it was really 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 cool and then you know everybody was just back to normal life in like summer and um and now it's kind of back to lockdown and i have to say Personally, it was a really good thing to me. It's not that it called me down, but it is more like, well, life just goes on and it will take us where it has to take. And it is good to me not to be always the the one who's setting up goals, who has a really good plan, who's a really big objective. It is good actually to live just and you do what you can do. I'm, I'm curious if, if people are... When you say lockdown, does that mean that they're just not going to crags at all? Because in the U.S., the you know the quote unquote lockdowns that we've had um, have looked like people are observing some protocols, but then they're also kind of sneaking out to climbing areas and essentially just not wearing masks and climbing together and acting as if there's no. Yeah. Well, no that was that was the case in spring, I would say, to a certain point. Also because there were really big difference between countries. Switzerland was all free, like all, everything was possible. They had some home office, but it wasn't really restricted. France was super hardcore. Like you can't leave home. Uh, and now it's Weren't a little bit Weren't some climbers weird. arrested in the Verdun? Did I, I, I think yeah. I read a story Yeah, there were that. super like big fees if you go climbing, if you were around. I mean, the, the hospital situation was just a... And it, it now it is back to like a dramatic, you know, it's like full, full, full. Um, so yeah, they set up another confinement, I would say a week ago, but it's super mellow. And I think they would just, um, you know, reinforce a bit the thing. It's kind of weird. Like, so you have so many people, um, it's unfair because you have like restaurants are closed, but then like schools are open or then, you know, it's kind of weird restrictions, restrictions. And imagine like France, they're just, they're not happy at all. Why he can that and why we can that and why we can that? It's super weird. Like there's no logic. Like today lockdown has like no sense. It wasn't that case in spring, which is really different. And I don't know, people are just a little bit tired of it, I would say. They're kind of sad that uh, you can't really plan something. They are sad that there's no there are no exciting events, there's no concerts, there's no festivals, there's like, there's not a lot going on. And I think people, they, they're a little bit sick of like being restricted by the government, especially if it, 
if it's like, if it doesn't make sense. I mean, people now are forced to wear masks outside. Like there's no sense to wear a mask outside, especially if you're just alone in like the mountains, like walking around. So this is so weird. It's all like so weird. And right now people they have a, who have like a diploma, they're allowed to go climbing because they need to train and to... So it's super weird. You can have whatever kind of diploma. This can be from paragliding to climbing or whatever. You are allowed because you have to maintain your fitness. Go and do sports if you have a diploma because only then you can prove something in a paper. Like this, like is, an official reason to, exactly. to be out there. This is like the total opposite of what I want to live. So I just mm. don't try to do, not that I do anything. I mean, I work on a truck and I'm reading a lot and I'm just super mellow and kind of happy with, you know, with like little things. So yeah, I just observe a lot. I watch a lot. It's kind of, it's, it is actually really amusing to see like people's reaction on certain things or certain, you know, how people need to know and they need to, they need to plan and they need to, you know, to prove something or I don't know, need to always like those needs because the, the society was just like forcing us to create those needs. And now we can't, right? Like if you think about like our grandparents, like, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, they were just at home working and like doing some little walks and they had the family life and that was all good. And now we're just, we got used to to have everything, so much freedom, like so much freedom to move around and to take a plane and to do that and to do that. And now we have just time and we're just asked to stay maybe at home and just to calm down and it's not possible. It sounds like you have been occupying yourself with this truck. Um, and I saw we, Andrew and I both saw pictures of it. Uh, you posted something on Instagram. So, um, yeah, this is, seems like maybe a good pandemic lockdown project. Tell us a little bit about this truck and what your intent is, um, with your truck. Well, truck idea was actually, yeah. I mean, I asked myself, I seriously asked myself about a couple of like last months, what's next in my life? Like how, which color do you want to give to my life? And I would say like um, last year, I think it was exactly last year, I somehow topped out on the nose. I was very, very, very close to send. And I deeply felt like, huh, I think like a cycle is over. Like a cycle is over of like plumbing and like having goals and then having bigger goals and then giving everything and coming back and then immediately you know working on this next thing and not really do like an engagement to something else or not really willing to leave this little comfort of my own little world where I'm super good at it but I was like huh it it started to be really repetitive yeah I wanted to have something new I wanted to share also I was super happy that last year I met this guy who is like super crazy also and that now i don't know we can just share more so the truck andrea it's her or his name we don't know is actually the idea of traveling around differently traveling very slowly and being able to reach uh, remote places and really bring the values of sports to people maybe they don't have access 
And this can be through like a, we have a boulder wall on the truck, which we can set up and put away again. It's like stocked on the roof and in the back. And then also just to uh, go and set up routes, um, do water sports. But really what I I realized over the last years is the values we create through sports, especially in climbing, are very, very good. It's not that I think, but of course, we do the best sports in the world. But um, every time I was traveling for, let's say, climb aid, uh, I climbed with uh, Syrian refugees and camps. And we brought climbing through this climbing truck. Or when I was traveling on really remote places and then we started climbing, you can really see like how people, it really brings people together. And they, they're so focused. And I mean, we know all of that, right? I think it's really impressive to me to see that that, that magic. I really, I'm really like a nomad. So I was just thinking about a way to do it. And Andrea is like a um, Unimog, which is like solid to travel really slowly and like spend a lot of time in one place and traveling with airplanes all over just to have like a climbing goal and to have fun and then coming back. And it's not really what I want to do anymore. Like you'll end up shipping it around as well. I mean, are yeah. you talking about moving, you know, continent to continent? Uh, well, I wouldn't go like so far at all. So first, we really stay in Europe, Eastern, Eastern Europe, especially like, you know, Macedonia and Albania and like uh, Greece and, and, you know, like there's so many cool places. And uh, so leaving for, for like from here, from France, driving and doing trips for at least three months, but then coming back. But then in a few years, I would say, I don't know, maybe four or five years, we just leave the road to east and uh, to go to China. But I mean, slowly. Just to uh, paint a picture of what this thing looks like, it's 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 almost like an earth roamer, if, you've, if you're familiar with that type of vehicle. And um, it seems to have, you know, like kind of four-wheel off-road capabilities and a house box on the, on the back that's got all the all the gadgets and gizmos that you could want. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. It has uh, actually I mean, been like a vehicle for like a races, you know, it was a uh, race assistant vehicle and like a Datkar. I don't know if you, you say something. It's like in the, in the desert, they do like crazy, crazy races, car races. And that was the vehicle who had like, who was the assistant. And so it's actually not really big. It's just high and is really like off-road managing it's not like a well it's like a 17 liter per 100 kilometer so it's not like a unit like a crazy vehicle which is just like drinking drinking like diesel it's it's a really okay it's an okay vehicle and yeah the, the box is actually not so big just tiny but really solid that we can also build a wall on it we will have like a roof tent i mean the goal is really to share that with a lot of people and uh, yeah, I mean, my idea is really that um, once we go a little bit further, my idea is really to leave the truck and to come back by train and to work here in Europe and then go back that by train. My my idea is really to minimize the the airplane. And also if I invite people, I really invite people to join us through like boat, ferry or train to really to offer like this this other way of like traveling to say, yeah, if you want to join us, like take a month, like take a month off and 
go and catch a train and it will take like three or four days to join us. But really that people realize like the journey starts when you're at home and you pack, you know, and you pack and then you move from your house. And as soon as you do the first step, that's where the journey starts. And that's actually what the, the best trips I did were like that. Chris and I will be on the next boat to uh, Europe with our, <laughs> yes. our four-year-olds. Yeah. I think a 60-hour boat ride with, with, yeah. with four-year-olds should mean, go perfectly yeah, really, smoothly. I mean, I mean it, makes, it takes time, but maybe it's also a way to invite people and say, yes, but really, like, are you able to, to really to have this feeling of vacation when you just have a, like a one week and you hurry around and you take a flight to Tahiti or what, wherever, and then after one week you have to come back. It's just to really to, to reflect and to invite people to reflect about how much time they spend working and uh, how much money they spend on just like buying things because they work and they have created their needs. I mean, I'm not judging at all, but I think it's just a good reflection for like people to think about how much do you really need to be happy? And how much is just, is just like needs created from the society? I don't know. Maybe it's just also in my veins. I've always been a gypsy. I have such a big detachment from material things, you know, because I think I found out my way to, to find the like happiness. Is that something you've always had or is that something you learned from climbing? Uh, I think both. I think both. Yeah. My mom, like I lost my dad a long time ago and uh, for her, it was super important always to share things. And I grew up in like the mountains and it is a very place where I was super close to nature and we helped a lot in the farm and, you know, we managed a lot in the house and uh, it was just so nice, the, the values my mom gave us. And then from climbing, of course, it, it helped me to uh, to see like a the climbing, like the more simple I can climb and travel and just be with myself and nature and my partner, the more I'm, I'm really satisfied. One of the things that uh, leading up to this, I, you know, went back and looked at at least the last 10 years of media that you've done. So, And, and particularly, you know, we were, Andrew and I are both really fascinated in, in all the cool stuff that you've done in uh, the Radicon um, and I also watched the Oro Bayou video again the other day. Mm-hmm. You know, you come across in those videos, and I think in person, because we've talked before, you know, at least then, like this hyper-motivated, you know, e- extremely goal-oriented climber, right? I think you mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, and, and the way it's depicted in some of these films, like, you know, throwing yourself at these climbs and, and very much emotionally invested in success is it easy to walk away from that mentality? Or are you going to keep it? Or are you going to somehow incorporate it into this this new life? Well, the thing is, like, you know, like, Nina, I am how I am. Like, I, right. I, I will never I guess be that's able. what I'm getting at, yeah. Yeah, I will never be able to. When I'm at the cliff, you know, and I'm hanging on a piece of rock, I don't let go. Like, this is just, I, I mean, I can't even, like, manage it. It's just, that's how I am. And that every time i just give every in every single climb i just give everything i have right but i think over the last years i learned to be a little bit more soft with myself which is good which is really healthy and also with the age really i i told you like 
Last year, when I came back from the U.S., it was so good to have this experience and to go and to try the nose over such a long period of time. But uh, it also felt like it really helped me to to end up a cycle. And um, I will not change. Like, my personality will not change. But um, I think I am a little bit less self-goal-orientated. I've always been able to set up goals, like no problem. I've always been driven by climbing and ideas and like crazy dreams, right? But it's just now my goals are not like, okay, multi-bitch line, big objective, training, go, give it like hell, being exhausted. Okay, and then succeed or not, train again or not. This is like just a thing, it doesn't make sense anymore to me. But I mean, now, like having these crazy goals with being able to create exactly the life I want to live, which is like, right, feels right to me right now. And then putting all this energy into building that plan with like Chuck and then all everything, like those crazy projects. This is really what drives me. The dream actually came out because I, I really wanted to spend a lot of time in Pakistan. And I was like, it could be so cool to travel in Pakistan for like three, three months with a car or with a van or whatever. And that was actually the initial idea. And, you know, being at those places and like climbing and like bolting and like, you know, setting up the boulder wall and climb with kids, you know, it will be exactly the same, the same fire as, you know, Nina from the videos. But now I'm just a bit older and I think I'm not willing to, I wouldn't say to fuck up health. But still, I mean, if we're super, super, super goal-orientated, like hardcore performance goal, your health is not like liking it a lot. And I think also last year in October, when I tried a nose for the second time with Lynn, I went a little bit too over my physical limits. I train like a lot, which is not really like my, you know, I don't train too much like normally. I had like a fungus in my feet and it was just super painfully but i just took like drugs to it that it goes away i lost a lot of weight to be super 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 fit and then yeah my health was just a little bit you know not really good when i came back like and that's the moment where i realized shit nina that's not good you should really think about how you can climb how you can really have this amazing ob objective but how you can really have this balance between like being more soft with yourself and being a little bit less perf hardcore performance and more like sharing, like sharing those values. Because um, I also think that I learned so much in my climbing career that it's really a big wish for myself to bring it to other people. That's good to hear because uh, often in the conversation around cutting edge climbing, there's so little acknowledgement of the potential health consequences oh. of losing a lot of weight and pushing your body to a place that uh, isn't, isn't optimal for, for health. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it is optimal for fleeting performance, but isn't sustainable sure. in the long term. Um, so that's interesting to hear. And I also just want to highlight what you said earlier about, the depiction of yourself in some of your media that you've done over the years. And I, I'm not sure if you characterize it exactly as a, 
slight difference from the real Nina in real life. But I'm I'm curious about the like take us into the world of a professional climber for a moment in terms of how you think about choosing a big objective that you want to do versus weighing what you think your sponsors or media companies might be interested or might get the most eyeballs versus the the considerations around what you're just most personally passionate about doing and if there's ever a tension there and how you think about that. Uh, well, first of all, objectives, they always call me. I never have to think about who, what's next, what could I do? There's always that moment where I have this like, wow, uh, I look at the picture or I have like, you know, I don't know, just a dream about the country and then maybe have a place and I want to bolt the route or whatever. But it's always calling me. I'm not forcing things that uh, I never think about who, what could I do? And uh, over the years, I made the experience, the only times I think I climbed not 100% for myself was uh, when I tried to climb a 9A, in, 9A in Spain. I was like, gosh, Nina, you're a rock climber. You should, you should do a 9A one day. But that was just not my, my line. So that was a point where, you know, like the balance wasn't right between having fun and climbing, like, and, you know, like doing investments, like, you know, training too much and like losing weight and stuff. So at the, at the end, you're just a loser, I think I would say. Because it wasn't right. And then the second time, it was, it was a little bit borderline with the nose. Because I wasn't sure, especially in between October 2018 and then last year in 2019. I wasn't sure if I really wanted to go back to prove or to make happy Lynn. Or was it really because myself I wanted to climb it. Uh, because she had she had so many expectations in like me doing that route and like you know sharing those moments with me so I wasn't really sure if uh, I just don't wanted to disappoint her or what was the reason and I choose the sponsors I love I love the gear that's my favorite thing I love what they do and I do my thing like I never think about like a sponsor to satisfy a sponsor I could do that but I love working with them. I mean, that's I have to have the best. And I'm not really, I don't really care about public. So it's really about a relationship between like me, myself, if I need to prove something to myself, or in the, the case of the nose, it is really about Lynn. But then when we went back like last year, I realized like, no, Nina, it's not for Lynn. You really have to, to do like a very special experience on that route. And there's something really important to discover. I mean, that formula is is the right one. I follow your career. We met years ago uh, in Spain. But, you know, I'm just like a casual fan. I, I like watching the videos you make. Mm -hmm. I like watching your Instagram and stuff. Um, but that feeling is important to me as a fan that I get that, again, that you are enjoying yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, there's there's times depicted we all have hard times climbing and it gets us down and everything else. But in general, <laughs> there's like a joy or a sense of um, adventure. And also the, the, one of the things I think is sort of uh, um, at least comes across in your, in your career or in the things you've done is these partnerships that you've had, you know, with 
you know, people like Babsy and with uh, Cedric and with uh, with Lynn, mm-hmm. you know, and connection you seem to have with your partners mm-hmm. uh, when you're climbing and how important that seems seems to be to you that you you clearly make that a statement about those things in your videos. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that, about um, how important partners are to you, um, especially when you're on larger routes that uh, that test not just your physical, but definitely <laughs> test your mental as well? The best thing to me is when me and my partner, we have a huge party at the wall. And not party in the sense of like we drink. No, I mean, to me, it changed a little bit when I split up with Cedric. Because with Cedric, mm-hmm. we were pretty much a team, like a super solid team. And we knew we were also like together because we were able to do big performances. Like we knew how to push each other and how to help each other technical things. And like we have our defined roles and it was pretty much hardcore. And um, of course it was also fun, but it wasn't the same fun as I had, let's say with Lynn on the wall, right? Because you're like a couple and, you know, a couple after a couple of years, you you know, you don't know what to tell each other anymore. So, <laughs> and then we were broke up where there's Bobsy and uh, Bobsy was super cool because she was somehow the first girl I teamed up to do like really hardcore stuff. That was awesome. Like to feel the synergy between like two girls and like to work differently in a route and so. And then I also like loved a lot of teaming up with Arno Petit because he teach he taught me a lot about bolting and uh, really like crack climbing and like being super strategic and like super you know uh, reflected on how to do things and how to open a route properly and you know doing things really good that was awesome. And uh, yeah, I mean, and then like Lynn, I mean, Lynn was, I would say, to some point, the most chaotic partner I had, I would say. She was pretty much, um, I don't know, just like coming from another world or coming from another, yeah, just period of time. And with Lynn, it is very, very clean. Um, My goal was, first of all, having the best time ever on the wall with Lynn. And I think during 2018, it is very much our goal was to celebrate her 25th anniversary of the first ascent, first free ascent. And I felt really honored to team up with her and to make that thing possible to her. But over the year, you know, the next year, we saw each other and we teamed up again. And there was just this very, very, very big synergy, this... um yeah, I would say real friendship. And then last year, of course, I wanted to send her out, but um, I realized how much I wanted to spend a good time with Lynn. And she was just enjoying it so much, like just climbing freely, like her route and like having camps and like, you know, chatting with people, passing and like, it was awesome. And she felt 100% safe. And 100% just happy to be there and 100% like ready to support and to cheer and to give everything. And uh, that's great. But really, like to me, like having like a party on the wall with my partner, that's the top on top. I always want to dance when I'm on the wall and have a good time. And just like dancing vibe really pushes me to do like a really good performance, you know, 
when you're at sitting somewhere and there you you know you can hear the music and then you want to stand up and you want to dance but and then this you know this little excitement comes up but then you go and you start dancing that's what i feel when i have a really good time on the wall and then you go and dance and you dance up the wall and and, and you sing and then and then you focus again but then you, you still have this little drive for you know to give it a rhythm yeah, it's wild because, you know, one of the things I've really enjoyed uh, of your career, again, in the last decade is the, you know, switching over from, you know, sp kind of young sport climbing phenom mm. to to these big roots and then the Radicon, you know, it's, I've never yeah. been there. I've It's just always been a fascinating place to mm. me and, and Bayak Camelander and all the, the all the history and and then watching you uh, again, you're like, you are having a great time and then you can you know, in, in the parlance, American parlance, you put the hammer down, you just like, exactly, yeah, yeah, you step yeah. on there. And it's just the transformation to me watching you uh, is just, it's so astounding. And it's, it's just this, I don't know, this incredibly inspiring thing to be like, mm -hmm. you know, having that much fun. And then, you know, to be able to put the hammer down on stuff that's really scary and keep a comfort zone, if you mm. will. Um, it's just a really fun and fascinating thing to watch. And, and uh, I think, like, delving into that part of your personality must be a really interesting place to go. I mean, I can control it in climbing because I think I have a lot of experience. But, um, yeah, it's a thing which is really natural to me. And, I mean, especially in the Raticon. I mean, the Raticon is, let's say, it's so close to where I grew up. It's like I grew up in a valley, you drive up 45 minutes and there is like a little alp where, you know, you have goats and like cows and they make cheese there. And then a little bit up there, it's the Radigan, and but there is nobody. And it's like the best climbing in the world and there's nobody, but it's so close to home. And what I love in the Radigan, it's like, there's always a big engagement. Like there's always, you, you can't do a mistake, especially when it's easy. Bolts are super run out and like, you, you really have to, how do you say it in English? To take your shit together? Yeah, yeah. keep your shit together. Keep your shit together, exactly. Keep it. Uh -huh. yeah. Not take it. Keep it. <laughs> <laughs> Taking your shit together is a whole different thing. <laughs> Which happens also in big walls. Yes. <laughs> on the way out when you're on a coral ledge, you do take your shits together. But uh, <laughs> No, anyways, this is like how crazy is that? And it's like super. So it's not like wild, like the most remote place, but it's just empty. Like there's nobody. And the climbers who are there, they're not, you know, talking bullshit and like drinking lots of coffee in the morning and, you know, like listening to like some music and stuff. They're just there. They're super impressed and super intimidated by the walls. And it's not just like that there's this intimidation. It's really like it's so peaceful. And at the same time, it's so powerful that you feel like, wow, I'm totally surrounded by nature. And now I go and I climb up one of those walls. And it's like this feeling every single time when I go to the Radigan. It's there. It's so big. The feelings are so big, but also like so calm. And yeah, I mean, the climbing, it's, you have to be, you have to feel really good in your shoes. You really have to trust yourself and to, and to be able to focus like a hundred percent 
to be able to read a line, to be able to deal with the unknown because there's no trace, you know, there's no, nobody climbs there. You have to be able to be super humble and to also know your limits. And um, this is, I think, what I, what I like most about there. You're there for like a really pure climbing experience. Have you ever sent 514? Do you want to? Well, you can give up everything for a monastic existence where you reduce the joy you had for climbing to a tiny ember, only fanned into flame for a brief second once every six months at the top of your gruelingly overcome project. Or you can become a patron of the runout. This month, our merry band of runout rope guns were treated to perhaps the deepest discussion of Clint Eastwood's infamous climbing movie, The Iger Sanction, ever recorded, printed, or otherwise uttered. The racism of that war was was completely on display. Black exploitation films were were in the theaters were very much part of it. So I think that that probably was in the ether as far as what they were thinking about with this this interracial relationship, which you know we don't even think about in films anymore. Yeah, but was like you said, it was like it would have been pretty wild just to randomly put that in there for no reason. It was definitely conscious. It was definitely intentional. And so it's it's a it's a bit of a conundrum to watch this film now. And I would encourage our listeners to just watch it because if you can get past the sort of cringy nature of, you know, all of the transgressions that we've we've come so far uh from in, in twenty twenty, it's an interesting conundrum to like ponder, like what were they trying to actually do? So now do you want more run out than you're already freeloading? I mean, getting for free? Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to become a rope gun and send 514 with merely the click of a button. This past December, the famed English mountaineer Doug Scott died in his home at the age of 79. Scott was a legend in Himalayan circles. In 1975, he and Dougal Haston did the first ascent of the southwest face of Everest, and endured a bivouac on the descent just 100 meters below the summit, the highest ever. More famously, Scott broke both ankles on the ogre in the Karakoram and endured one of the most harrowing descents of all time. On today's final bit, Nile Grimes of the Jam Crack Podcast joins us from across the pond to pay lively tribute to Doug Scott. What hell? Hello, Chris. Hello, Andrew. My fellow little transatlantic podcast, old beans. Hi, this is Nara Grimes over in Sheffield. Nara Grimes from James Craig Podcast. Uh, and okay, let's get out of the way. Inspired by Chris's podcast, what's it called? You know, Chris Calusa's podcast. Uh, based on that, I started mine. Okay, let's get that. Let's get that clear. I'm sorry. I've done mine. You've done yours, and I've done mine. There. Okay. Happy. Anyway. These two hosts, well, you know who they are because you're listening to their podcast, not mine. They asked me to read out Doug Scott. Uh, Doug Scott, famous old mountaineer character from Nottingham in England, died recently, uh, 2020, taking them all out, out of the uh, out of the firmament one by one. Uh, Doug was a legendary British climber, very active in the 60s and 70s, 80s. Well, probably active right up. Till close to the end of his life, Himalayan mountaineer, uh, etc. And the guys from the run out uh, asked me to 
read out a classic essay based on a classic tale, based on a classic descent of a classic mountain called the Ogre. Uh, Doug wrote this, I'm not sure what it's called, maybe a crawl on the ogre. It's very long. I demurred from reading the whole thing uh, because it's, it's incredibly long. You should go and track it down yourself somewhere. It's online somewhere. I didn't have the stamina to read out such a lengthy piece. So I'll just give you a flavour of what it's about because uh, it's hard to find the time to squeeze these things in right or wrong. But saving you the time of listening. Anyway, in this thing, right, in this thing called the, the ogre, uh, Doug Scott and Chris Bonington Bonners and Tut Braithwaite and a whole bunch of these other guys make their way up this incredible mountain incredible beautiful mountain called the Ogre and uh, Bonners and Doug manage to top it out and there's all throughout the thing you saw that sort of 70s mountaineering article type stuff lots of stuff like we spent six days attacking the wall and lots of numbers of lengths and details and stuff about difficulty. I'm sure if that's what you're into, you'll find it all there. It's all it's all standard fare of that way. Anyway, climbing's a body of understanding, isn't it? It's a it's all the stories you hear, all the people you know, all the climbs you've done, all these things agglomerate together into one sort of ball that you know of as climbing. Part of climbing uh, in my understanding, is legend and, and tales and hand-me-down tales, oral histories, oral oral renditions of things. And in a way, Doug's essay didn't have the vitality to me that I had from when I first heard about the story. And what I mean by that is people will tell you around campfires or in huts, have you heard about Doug Scott crawling down the ogre? And you go, no, what's that? And he sort of, well, well, they're climbing the ogre, this enormous mountain. And they get to the top and uh, on the way down, Doug slips and he has some sort of horrendous accident and breaks both his legs. Let me just read a tiny bit of it. Just a little fun bit. This is from the from Doug's essay. Uh, what about uh, 150 feet? Uh, peg crack, uh, blah, blah. I leaned across to fix myself to a peg pressing myself over with my feet. I stepped my right foot up against the wall, but in the gathering darkness, unwittingly placed it on a veneer of water ice. Suddenly my foot shot off and I found myself swinging away into the gloom, clutching the end of the rope. I couldn't imagine why the swing was going on and on. I hadn't realised how far left of the abseil sling I was, and all the time I was swinging a little exclamation of awe Surprise and fear was coming out from inside me, audible to Mo, some 2,000 feet away in the snow cave. And then the swing and the cry ended as I slammed into the opposite side of the gully, 100 feet away. Splat! Glasses gone and every bone shaken. A quick examination revealed head okay, trunk okay, femur and knees okay, but... Oh, oh, my ankles cracked when I moved them. The right one felt very peculiar. Pot's fracture, I diagnosed, without much real idea. Left one too, but perhaps it's just the tendons. So that was how it was going to be. A whole new game, with a whole new restrictions in winning. I was curious to observe my own reactions. I had no fear then. There was too much to do. I banged a peg in, put a couple of wire nuts in, tied off direct from my harness and hung off them 
while Chris came down the abseil rope. What ho? he said cheerily. I've broken my right leg and smashed the left ankle, I said. We'll just work on getting you down, he replied early. Don't worry, you're a long way from death. And that's, that's, the, that's the sort of crux of the story where Doug basically smashes his ankles and thence ensued, maybe off the top of my head from reading it the other day, like four or five days of these four guys going down this enormous Himalayan mountain in a storm, endless storms. And at one point, uh, Bonington abseils off the end of the rope and breaks his ribs so he could crack ribs. And just this enduring this horrendous hunger and Doug has to go on hands and knees and just crawling on his knees down this enormous mountain. At one point in this story, they sort of reach an abandoned camp, long abandoned, and they remember some rice. So they dig the bin bags out and there's rice full of fag butts and they just greedily eat the rice and the fag butts because they're so hungry, haven't eaten for days. And it goes on down like that. And So in the, in the story I was told orally, this doesn't appear in there, uh, I was told it was a really funny line, like sort of four days into this sort of. I got to say too, there's a really famous photograph that accompanies this uh, this tale. It's like a very blurry, dimly lit thing of Doug Scott staring into Bonington's camera, with his teeth gritted, his eyes bulging, and just like sort of look of death on his face. And this sort of this photograph went along with the with the story to sum up the extreme nature of of the thing that gone through. So in, in the story, as recounted. And he said at one point, Bonington turned to Doug and said, bloody hell, Doug, your, your widow will want for nothing. And uh, this is a really funny line. The, the inference of this line being Bonners was a very professional sort of uh, journalist and stuff like that. The inference being that this story is so great, they're all going to get rich whether Doug lives or dies. They're going to get rich off this story. So, uh, so that, that's the thing. So, anyway, the the story I was told was about Doug crawling down the down the ogre with broken legs, and it was such a cool story to hear. And it sort of it goes into your brainstem, doesn't it? So, go and read Doug's story if you want. But that's 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 the real famous Doug Scott story. Uh, and again, you you'd meet Doug a few times over the years. You, you know when you meet these guys when you sort of just ah, oh, there's Doug Scott. Uh, how's it going? And a lot, a lot of people thought Doug was super cool. He, he was clearly of his contemporaries. You know what I mean? Thought he was super cool, so he's clearly a, a super cool guy. I remember one time at a, you know, the sort of trade show type things you go to. This one was in Birmingham, not Birmingham, Alabama. Down in the valley, valley so low, hang your head over, hear the wind blow. You ever see that movie called Stir Crazy? We're on. Grossberger sings that beautiful song called Birmingham Jail. Uh, I'd been called in at the last minute to host this day of talks in the big exhibition centre. Is that a, a, an exhibition aimed at punters, you know, not really climbers, so outdoor enthusiasts. And at one point I stood on the stage and I started talking about uh, how I'd done Everest and spent a few days climbing Everest and how cool it was to get to the summit. And maybe back then doing Everest was a, still a little tiny bit cool, probably... Even then, this is like 10 or 15 years ago, even then it probably wasn't cool. But um, I was making all this up just to sort of impress all these sort of people eating their sandwiches. Just for a sit down, I said, blah, 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 Everest this, Everest that. And then I sat down afterwards and this this guy came up to me with a big, massive 
He was big coffee table books, the Himalayas in color, and asked me would he, would he sign me, sign his book, and I said yeah yeah, like sort of expensive big coffee table book. I said yeah yeah, signed it. Blah blah. To to Duncan, great stuff. Nagrams. He said what was it like? I said what was like what like? Is it Everest? What was it like? And I just looked at him in disgust. I just said, I was taking the piss, you idiot. And the guy just looked at my scrawl over his book and he just looked so sad and he picked up his book and walked off really unhappily. Later that same day, maybe the Sunday, you know, after a sort of hungover Sunday, after the uh, the Saturday night bash, I sat in the stall and Doug, came, Doug Scott came along and sat down beside me. All right, Doug, how's it going? He sat there for a while. We sort of, it was one of those sort of, you know, sort of boards, board Sundays. We sort of, he's probably an interesting guy, but sort of he's a bit too bored to chat. It reminded me, a few years ago, I was out in Banff for uh, the book. I'd done this Jerry Moffat book and I won a prize. And uh, so you, get, you go over to get the prize. And there was, what's his name? Royal Robbins. Uh, and uh, he, he'd written some book, his volume one sort of thing. And at one point, there's this book signing thing. And book signings are really boring. You just sort of sat there feeling like a bit of a sort of tool behind a desk. And the, de- the seat beside me there was Royal Robbins. And I just, I was kind of just so bored. And he was obviously so bored. We just couldn't speak to each other. Just sort of, uh, hi, maybe it made an effort to sort of say hello and then just went back to your sort of so own boredom. It's funny that like, you sort of think, well, he's he's one of the first legends I knew about. You think you'd find something to talk about. But thus, thus it was. And thus it was at the, the Birmingham, Alabama trade show. And Doug came and sat by, beside me. How's it going, Doug? And uh, said a few words. And Doug had recently released his Himalayan mega. Maybe it's the same book as had science. There was some sort of Himalayan mega mountaineering book floating around, either Doug's or the other one, or maybe both. I can't remember now. And people come along to get Doug to sign his book. And then along came this guy called, what's he called? Uh, Phillips. Cliff Phillips. Cliff Phillips. Cliff Phillips is this Lamberis, North Wales, 60s cat uh, from this mad era of sort of intense partying that Lamberis went through in the 60s where a lot of casualties emerged from because uh, they party too hardy, party hardy. And uh, Cliff is this character from then, really underground character, famous for having fallen reputedly on acid 200 metres down some enormous cliff in the Lamberis Pass, broken his bones, crawled back to his car and drove to the pub. That's the that's the Cliff Phillips story. Super underground character. You know, you need to know a lot about climbing. They know about Cliff, but when you do, you think, what a super cool guy. Cliff came along in this sort of like a blazer, like a sort of English blazer, and a pair of jeans and a pair of Chelsea boots, and those like sort of sixties suede boots, and sat down beside Doug. So it was me, Doug, and then Cliff. And he said something. Then uh, so the punters had come along and with their big massive forty pound book. And asked Doug to sign the book, and Doug had signed the book. And then I don't know how it came around, but then Cliff would take the book off Doug and sign it as well, and then pass it back to the punter. And almost, I mean, I remember thinking, how is, why is he signing the books? N- n- absolutely no one in this line are about 10, 10 degrees, even with 10 degrees of separation. The people in the line getting Doug to sign the books have no connection to Phil. They just they they're too far away from I'm gonna fell from Cliff. They're too far away from Cliff to get it. But it's just so common. I just remember just sort of slightly hung over, punter after punter, handing uh, 
Doug Scott the book and then Doug Scott handed the, the cliff and the cliff signed the book and then the confused punter taking the book back. In almost no way, Cliff's signature been the cool signature. No offence to Doug, but Cliff's signature was the, the hard one to get. It was just such a comical little scene. And, you know, he said, I'm not going to ask him. He's going to sit and soak this in and remember it because this is cool. This is well cool. Anyway, that was Doug. Uh, blah, blah. I was asked to speak between one minute and five minutes. Okay, edit that down to your one minute and five minute. Guys, hello, America. Uh, from Sheffield, England. Andrew and Chris, hope that fitted the bill. Good luck with your podcast. Hope you guys aren't making loads of money out of this podcast, are you? And I'm sitting over here working my fingers to the bone, losing money hand over fist with jam crack. Anyway, uh, cool. That rhymes. Hand it back to Chris and his little friend, Andrew. All right, guys. Cheers. Bye. You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Kalutz, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast on the internet. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com.